Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm thrilled that you could be with us this morning at the end of the summer. Not quite the end, but nearly the end. And uh, the end of this series, we begin a series soon about verse practices of our faith, what Christians do. And so that'll start soon, but uh, this morning we're looking at the book of Jude. It's the next to the last book in the Bible. It's significant, actually, the material in it uh, for this moment in history. So please take a moment, pray with me, and then we'll look at the text. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls at the end of this uh, summertime and the beginning of this new week, the beauty of creation. We see all around us uh, your sustaining power. We're mindful that the forests have been here for thousands of years and the rocks and the trees and the valleys and the rivers, millions of years. And Father, in the midst of that sustaining power, uh, we're mindful this morning of your invitation for us to live a life of faith that uh, remains intense and vibrant until our last breath. So equip us toward that end this morning, Father, that we might be shaped to be people of hope in our world, and we'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, How many of this two-part question... Don't raise your hand initially. How many bought a car and a brand new car? You bought a brand new car, and when you bought it, you said, um, man, I love that new car look, feel, smell. I'm going to work hard at maintaining the beauty of this car. And then you actually didn't do that, and the car kind of decayed. Has this ever happened to anybody in the room? Some confessions? There's only really a few of you. Is that really true? Am I among the minority there? I guess so. Well, I'll believe you. Uh, but this is definitely, for me, the reality. When I buy a car, I'm excited. Oh, it's new. I'm going to preserve it. But it's honestly, it's not a priority at all. And it very quickly decays. Uh, the Yaris that I now own, I've had since uh, about 2008. So it's about nine years old now. And it looks like it's 10 or 11 years old, probably. Uh, even though it doesn't have a lot of miles on it, uh, it's, yeah, it's dinged up from, you know, skis falling on it. And th- just last week, Donna says, what's that stain on the, there's a rug that's supposed to prevent the car from staining, and the, now the rug has a big stain. I said, it has something to do with chicken McNuggets and sauces and hitting the brakes really quickly. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's there. I said, don't worry about it. It's not your car. It's fine. Uh, it just, things happen, Right? Now, why do I share the story? Here's why. That's just a, that's just a, bless you. That's just, that's just typical, just typical, actually, typological of a very important reality. And here's the truth. You write this down, take it to the bank. Nothing cleans itself. On this, we all agree, right? Nothing cleans itself. You don't leave something alone and find it in better shape than, uh, than before because the way of all the cosmos is this kind of decline. Nothing sustains itself, nothing renews itself. Like God has given humans the capacity and the calling actually to steward, care for, uh, all that stuff. So it it just, we need to be participants in sustaining what God has given us. And this predominantly, foundationally begins with us sustaining our faith. So hear me, your faith doesn't sustain itself. Did you know that? Like you come to Christ and then, if you, don't, if, there, if you don't continue in Christ actively, there will be a slow burn, a slow decay. I've been a pastor for over 30 years, and I can tell you now that one of the most common stories 
uh, is this. You could write a spiritual epitaph over many people's lives. They started well, but they didn't finish. Read 1 Corinthians 10. Many people started well, didn't finish. Many people left uh, Egypt, didn't go into the promised land. So I'm calling that this morning spiritual entropy. And if you're a physicist, don't pick on me. I understand that there's a distinction. But uh, we're just, you understand the word picture, decay, right? Something's, you leave it alone, and it decays. And, and the book of Jude, next to the last book of the Bible, very short, written because of faith entropy. That's why it's written. People are uh, drifting away from the faith. You use whatever kind of word picture you want, but the point is uh, their lives are not becoming more intensely devoted to Christ, they're becoming less intensely devoted to Christ. And so Jude is writing a warning. And a strategy to avoid this decay, and a promise to hold on to. A warning strategy promise. That's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. And the warning is the bulk of the book, but I'm going to try and spend time not just on the warning, but also the strategy and the promise as, as we go through this. So, next, last book of the Bible, uh, and it begins with a, with, a, with a warning, because there's a long history of entropy with respect to faith. So, here's, here's the warning at the very, very beginning of the book. It's in uh, Jude uh, chapter, uh, well, there's only one chapter. But it's in Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, long before marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into license, deny our master and Lord Jesus the Christ. So uh, there's a, like the, the key phrase here at the beginning in verse 3 is this, uh, contend earnestly for the faith. And let me just tell you at the beginning, here's how this is often uh, misread, uh, because it's coupled with the next verse. It says certain people have crept in uh, unaware, and they've poisoned the faith. And so, often, when this book is taught, it's rarely taught, but when it's taught, it's often taught this way, watch out, like there's a heretic behind every bush, and so you know, look and find and wag the finger and go online and say, you know, don't listen to Richard Dahlstrom. He's a covert Unitarian or whatever, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, like contend for the faith. And it's like license to be ugly and divisive. And I, I'm going to say that really that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to say, look, uh, you, Phil Malding, watch out for your faith, right? You, Tom, watch out for your faith. Because if you just live passively, uh, entropy will set in, and 20 years from now, you'll find yourself not in love with Jesus anymore, and not living in the story of hope that God desires to ride through you. And so you see this, that's the warning. That's the warning. You watch out. We collectively watch out. It's not, it's not intended to create defensiveness. It's intended to create discernment and diligence in our own human hearts. Uh, uh, there's a long history in the Bible of entropy with respect to faith. You just see it all the way through the Bible. God has an idea here, and, and, and then he, God institutes the idea, and then instead of things getting better, things get worse. It happens over and over again. Ah, I know. The earth is violent everywhere. I'll save one family, Noah, and then we'll start over. Well, he saves Noah, but then before Noah even, right after he leaves, gets off the boat, uh, he's drunk and curses his sons, and then within a couple of generations, you have the Tower of Babel. So, okay, that didn't work. How about a nation? That's it. Well, okay, we'll start a nation. So with Abraham, I'll create a nation. They will represent my heart. I'll give them, you know, laws written in stone, and they'll do it, and it'll be good. 
Well, Ezekiel 16, by the end of that nation's history, uh, Ezekiel 16 says this. Look, Israel, I created you to be up here kind of shining as a light so that people would see justice, mercy, hope, righteousness. Uh, and instead, you're worse than all the nations. So that all the nations, as clueless as they are, they, they all know one thing. There's, we know who we don't want to be, Israel. <laughs> right? So that plan didn't work either. So then along comes Jesus. I know. I'll break down all the dividing walls. I'll create this vast family of sons and daughters from every tribe, every nation. Peace, justice, mercy, new kingdom. Uh, and, and now we're near the end of that story in the book of Jude. And instead, they're shooting each other. So um, be careful. Because if you live passively, you'll drift away. That, because it's all through the Bible, people drifting away. So now, uh, in particular... There's three warnings. So under this rubric of warning, be careful of license, be careful of arrogance, be careful of fruitlessness. Those are the three things. Look at license, look at verse four. It says, certain persons have crept in unnoticed uh, and they've turned the grace of God into licentiousness or license, right? And they do this by denying the authority of Christ. Now follow this with me. Um, what, what's really being articulated here is probably in my opinion, best articulated by theologian and martyr uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he had a phrase in his book, Cost of Discipleship, cheap grace. And I'm quoting Bonhoeffer now, this is what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Uh, it's baptism without uh, church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. In other words, hear this, the essence of grace, we suppose wrongly at times, is that because the account has been paid in advance, uh, then everything can be had for nothing. In other words, we sing it, don't we? Jesus paid it all, right? Uh, we sing it better than that, but that's how we sing it. Uh, and we go, okay, since Jesus paid it, then I'm free to do whatever I want. I mean, I've lived long enough as a pastor that I've literally talked to people who are kind of willfully walking in what they know is self-destructive, and they're like this, it doesn't matter, it's all under the blood. Now, that's, that's in itself destructive, but there's a more subtle destruction here. And Bonhoeffer spoke of the more subtle destruction because he found it very difficult to understand in the 1930s how the church was not just silent, but affirming when its national leader it was inciting hatred against the Jews and those of a different political persuasion. He was like, how can the church not speak up? This needs to be happening. And uh, uh, that same leader was advocating a violent overthrow and destruction of all who are weak, poor, Jewish, uh, gypsies, homosexuals, the whole thing in the pursuit of the kind of this pure national greatness. And Bonhoeffer was trying to understand how can this be that the church is not just silent but complicit? How does this happen? And he came to the conclusion that spiritual entropy had set in in the church in Germany in the 1930s. In other words, listen, the church had grown weak. How? Because they misunderstood grace. How did they misunderstand grace? Here's how. Uh, there's kind of this sense, and I hear it today, look, Christ died for us. That's in the past. Christ is coming again to, to you know, rapture us out of this yucky place someday. That's in the future. So I, 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 when we gather then, this was the church in Germany, according to Bonhoeffer. They would gather only to remember and hope, but not to live. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, we remember what Christ did. He died for me. We're, we know what he's going to do in the future. He's going to come back for me. But right now, hey, we're on our own. Functionally, we're on our own. 
And, and, and so we know we'll fail, but it's all covered by, by grace. And so we gather then to remember the past, hope for the future. Uh, Bonhoeffer and Jude and I would say no. <laughs> like, yes, we remember. Yes, we hope. But we gather to learn how to live into our calling in the present, to embody nothing less than the resurrected Jesus in our life together. And if we do that, that will, now we'll swim upstream against a culture that is uh, self-destructing. So, of course, uh, the thing that we need to see here is Germany was complicit with fascism, but fascism is not the only manifestation of license. Uh, so sexual addiction, greed, rage, bitterness, pride, cynicism, complacency. In other words, remember when Jesus said, uh, the road is broad that leads to destruction and the road is narrow that leads to life? What's he saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, uh, when God has asked of you a next step, whatever that is, deal with your sexual ethic, deal with your money, deal with your greed, deal with your marriage, deal, deal with it. And then you resist that and you say, no, I'm not going to deal with it. Whatever you're doing then instead, you do anything, that's your, it's a path of destruction. Does, does this make sense? Like God asks you a next step and you say no, Every other, any other step you take, and there are a million options, they'll all destroy you. When you're rock climbing, and some of you do this in the room, so you know, uh, there's what are called crux moves at times in rock climbing, and this is where you're at a point, and there's only one way up. There's only one way. And you have, so sometimes you have to leave the comfort of, of your feet being on the rock and move without even knowing you're going to get that next thing, but it's the only option. One road to life, there's a million ways to fall, right? There's only one way to go up. That's what Jesus is saying. In what sense is the road narrow? Look, I'm speaking to you. Deal with this. You say no. Whatever you do instead, that's destructive. So, and, and, and so uh, Bonhoeffer's point was when the church gathers, but it, you know, is willfully refusing uh, to deal with xenophobia, even the gathering is destructive because it's, it's in lieu of obedience to Christ. So obedience is, is the thing. And uh, when we say, oh yeah, you know, saved by grace, uh, when grace in increases, uh, when sin increases, grace increases all the more. Good, let's sin more. No, that's license. Pardon me, this thing is driving me nuts here. Let me just do this. Okay. Uh, so now, let's go on. Uh, arrogance. So uh, license is a problem, a warning. Also beware of arrogance. What's arrogance? Arrogance, down in verse 11, woe to those who have gone the way of Cain. Now there's other people in here, Balaam and Korah. We don't have time to deal with all the examples. But the way of Cain, we will deal with this example. In other words, uh, if you know your Bible a little bit, you know this, uh, in the very beginning you had Adam and Eve, and then you had Cain and Abel, he had two brothers, and then they both brought offerings to God. Cain and Abel both brought offerings to God, and this is what it says in Genesis 4 uh, or 3 or whatever it is. God had regard for uh, Abel's offering, but rejected Cain's offering. God rejected Cain's offering. Now, this is very, very important that we unpack this, because we're told here, don't go the way of Cain. Now, see this, if Phil is Cain, um, when Cain brought the wrong offering, God is not like this. 
filthy sinner, die. You know, lightning and he melts in a pool. No, no, no. What did God say? He said, hey, Cain, wrong offering. Uh, look, trade with your brother Tom here, get some meat and come back and give me, bring the right offering. That's, it's simple. It's corrective. Do you understand? It's corrective. And, and, and so now, what does it say? It says, when God corrected Cain, rather than Cain being like, here's the right answer. Oh, thanks God for the word. And then go fix it. it what does it say? It says, Cain's countenance fell and he became angry. And I just totally picture Cain like a pouting four-year-old, you know, when you say eat your vegetables, and they're like, no, I want to eat, why do you make me eat my vegetable? You know, I just picture that, here's Cain pouting now. His countenance fell, he becomes angry. Stupid fundamentalist God, you know, telling me how to worship. I worship, look, I'm sincere, I'm sincere, right? I, like, as long as you come to God, you know, and you're sincere, it's all that matters. I'm here to tell you that God is here to tell you, according to Jude, no. <laughs> Jesus said in John 4, you want to worship? Worship in spirit and in what? Truth. In other words, God has a way to worship. And when God speaks to you about your worship and you reject that revelation, now you're in the family of Cain. And Cain rises up and kills, he kills Abel. So he, so he says here, he says, look, um, be careful that you're not arrogant like Cain. What makes Cain arrogant? Cain's like this, I'll decide how I worship. I'm not going to let God tell me how to worship. Look, if I want to worship God, if I'm going to do God the favor of worshiping God, then I'm going to figure out how I'm going to worship the way I want to worship. I'm going to worship in my time frame, when it's convenient for me, when it doesn't intrude into my lifestyle very much. Oh, yes, it'll be worship, but if you worship on my terms, my way, my timetable, that's the way of king. Right? And then what's even worse is this. When uh, God speaks to Cain, rather than receiving corrective truth, Cain digs in even deeper. So here's the question for all of us in the room. Like when someone holds up a mirror and reveals to you truth that is corrective in your life, how do you respond to that? Because if your response to correction, if your response to confrontation, if your response to like hearing a hard word is always this, oh yeah, and then you point the finger back at the other. And then and, and you shout even louder or you vilify the person and, 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 and you call the person names. That is arrogance, right? And, and, and that's, we're told here, that's the way of Cain. When, when, when there's a hard word, either directly from the scripture or uh, within the community of faith, someone says a word in your life. Hey, can I talk to you about your spending habits? I see that you don't have enough money to give and you've got uh, all this credit card debt. Let me tell you about financial peace class or something. We can talk about this. Let's, like we know each other well enough. Let's talk about sexuality. Let's talk about whatever it is that needs to be talked about. And then you're like this, no, I won't. And then you go off and you find a whole new group of friends who won't hold you accountable. <laughs> That's the way of Cain right? There's an old movie that most of you have never seen because you're too young called Ordinary People. And Mary Tyler Moore was married to uh, whatever the guy's name was. And there was a death in the family. And then their marriage was really hanging by a thread. And I'll never forget, it's a powerful scene in film where they're in the bedroom. He says to her, we have to talk about our marriage. It's about to implode. And, and you, have, you have not dealt with like the death of our son, we have to talk about it. This is what she did, literally. 
She turns around. It's so poignant. She turns around. She goes to her little chest of drawers. She opens it. She goes under the bed. She gets out a suitcase, and she packs her clothes, and she leaves. Without a word, she leaves. Man, I remember, you know, watching that, and I was married five years at the time. This shiver comes through my whole body, like, this could happen to anyone if we're unwilling to have the hard conversation. And that's the way of Cain, right? Oh, I don't like what you say. I have an idea. I'll kill you, right? Not such a good idea, okay? The way of Cain, uh, arrogance. Finally here, there's a warning about fruitlessness because fruit is the bottom line. Uh, Verse 12 These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, uh, clouds without water, carried along uh, by wind, autumn trees without fruit. And so the point here is this. Uh, uh, Be careful that you don't become a person who in spite of the fact that you're in proximity to people of faith, you carry a Bible, you read, you show up for worship, understand that showing up for worship is not how your faith is validated. Like, being good at apologetics is not how your faith is validated. But what, what did Jesus say? By your what shall you know them? Like, fill in the blank. By your fruit, you'll know them. By your fruit. Like, how is your faith validated? Well, here's how. Do you look like Jesus? Like, more and more like Jesus. You know, generosity, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, going the second mile, uh, serving. Or is your life characterized by arrogance? It's simple. You're known by your fruit. And, 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 and so the complaint here that Jude has is there are people within the community who are fruitless and uh, they need to wake up and see that this is, this is the danger. Fruit's a major theme, as you know, in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 5, uh, uh, Isaiah paints a word picture. He says, hey, a man goes out, uh, buys, a, buys a vineyard, cares for the soil, uh, trims the vines, uh, waters the soil, but if you buy a vineyard, like, you have a pretty good idea of what your metrics are for success, right? Like, if you buy a vineyard, what's the one thing that you want? You want a good grape so you can have a good wine. And so Isaiah 5 says, so this guy goes and he buys a vineyard and he does all the right things, but the, but the grapes are worthless. They're not even, you can't do anything with them. So then it's a rhetorical question in Isaiah 5. Read it sometime. Uh, so, what, so God said, what should I do with my vineyard? And the, uh, it's obvious. If I have the investment of the land and the vineyard is not producing, then I need to pull it up and plant new vines. Why? Because the bottom line is what? Fruit. And, 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 and so fruit here is intended to be, John 15, a natural outflow of you being linked with Christ. Here's what Jesus says, abide in me and you bear much fruit. But then Jesus goes on and he offers, in that text, John 15, like a very poignant warning. He says, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. What does that even mean? How can I be in Christ and not bear fruit? Jude shows you exactly how. Like you came to Christ, so you're in Christ, but now you're living arrogantly. And God is speaking to you about money or sex or, or being charitable or serving or whatever it is, and you're saying no. And so now, though you're in Christ, you're not receiving the life-giving source that is the vine, and you are not producing fruit. You are a tree in the fall with no fruit. And, 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 and then what happens? Well, what does Jesus say? That that. Peace of the vine is good for 
Nothing. <laughs> and so you find yourself then, regardless of church attendance, you find yourself outside of God's story. In other words, you're not using your gifts. You're not in community. You're not allowing people to speak into your life. You're not giving. You're not celebrating. You're not on this ongoing journey of transformation. Oh, you show up, but, but there's no fruit. <laughs> and fruit, by the way, is the, it's the point. So I'd love to read stories about people who have borne fruit because it inspires me and to know people whose lives have borne fruit. Donald Lowry was a, was a man who worked with um, students in Russia in the, in the 20s and 30s. And then when, when France was occupied, uh, he, he moved to France and gathered together leaders from Jewish, Christian, and by Christian I mean Protestant, like mainline Protestant, Jews, Protestants, Quakers, and Mennonites. He gathered all these together and he says, listen, we're going to work together uh, to do everything we can to expedite uh, getting children, Jewish children out of France. We're gonna, that's what we're going to do. And in the meantime, until we get them out, we're going to do everything we can to, uh, to provide food and clothing for them because where they're living is horrific and uh, children are dying at a rapid rate and the elderly are dying. So he, like he headed up this entire kind of uh, ecumenical group who had one thing in mind, let's care for those who are being executed and, and imprisoned, right? Uh, that's fruit. That's the gospel. And, and so if we take a look at our lives and we can point to nothing other than, well, I, I'm eating and I'm alive and I'm getting rich, that might be a fruit question for you to ask. Because Jude says here, look, we're, you're called to serve. Everybody's called to serve. It's part of fruit. Part of fruit. And the other part of fruit, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, looking like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. So there's the kind of three warnings, fruit, fruitlessness, arrogance, and um, that first one, license, right? So those three. Now, uh, hopefully, you're like this. Okay, I don't want any of this to happen to me. What do I do? There's a strategy. The strategy is uh, pray, love, serve, and save. Just four things we'll look at very briefly. Pray, love, serve, save. Like how, so, so you're not called to live in fear of drifting away. There's actually things that God has called you to do. First, pray in the Holy Spirit. Do you know what this means? Romans, let me quote Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the, in the same way, uh, says Paul, the Spirit helps us with our weakness because this is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. For we do not know how to pray. Did you know it says that in the Bible? Romans 8 Verse 26, how many in the room ever feel like in a, you're in a situation and you don't know how to pray? A child has just died, somebody has, uh, uh, somebody has cancer, unemployment, infidelity, somebody's making it, they're at a crossroads, vocationally, you don't know how to pray, you don't know how to pray. Well, here's the good news. The Bible's already told you, you don't know how to pray. So relax. <laughs> yeah, like you don't have to worry about, a, man, if I, like if I ask wrong, is God gonna guide wrong? You don't have to worry about that. Why? Here's what it says. When you just show up, you just show up and you say, Sudan, <laughs> you don't know what to do. <laughs> when you just show up and, and name a problem, it says the spirit intercedes, takes your prayer and turns it into a prayer. Isn't that amazing? I, don't, I can't explain it. I'm just telling you this is what the text says. 
We just, so all I need to do is show up and I, I, and, it's, and I can pray. My marriage. Our children. I don't have answers. I just bring it up before the Lord. The Spirit knows how to turn that into a prayer that needs to be prayed, right? And the thing to see in this is even, you, even if you don't know how to pray, as you bring things before the Lord, understand that in the Scripture, prayer actually makes a difference. In other words, there, there are many times in the Scripture, and I'll just share one with you, when God is making it clear that uh, though God is sovereign, it's also true that God limits activity based on prayer at various times. I can't pull these together for you, but that's, they're both there. So we believe God, is saw, God does what God wants to do, but also your prayers matter. My favorite example is in Ezekiel 22. God says to Ezekiel, tell the people why I'm destroying Jerusalem. And here's why. I looked around for one person who would be praying, interceding for the city. I looked for one, if I, the subtext, had I found one person, I would not have destroyed the city. But then you read it. God says, so, and I found no one, therefore judgment is determined. No one praying makes a difference. We used to have a cabin in Kendall, which is right up at the Canadian border, a little log cabin. Phil knows the area a little bit. And in the early 90s, there was a huge influx of Russian immigrants coming into that area. And very quickly, also, the Russian mafia kind of was a thing. It was a thing in, right by our cabin, right? So when I was on holiday, uh, and we're staying at the cabin, I'd go to the Russian church. And the ch it was a Pentecostal church, and they, the service was in Russian. And when I'd go, they'd always provide a translator who'd sit there with me and explain. The service went for hours, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, they had said to me from the very beginning, we're not worried about the Russian mafia, we're praying. I go, what do you mean? Well, we're praying for all of them, and this is our prayer. We pray it every day. God, either arrest them and throw them in jail, or lead them to Christ. Or both, if you want, whatever. <laughs> right? But God, we're praying here that you make a difference. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Bunch of arrests, bunch of conversions, no more, no more Russian mafia. Oh, God would do it anyway. You don't know. You don't know. Here's the point. Pray. Like you want to you keep your faith real? Pray. It's a, it's a thing. It's a very important thing. Second, love. And by this it means uh, the, the text says here in verse 20 and 21 and so, keep yourselves in the love of God, verse 21. What does that mean? Well, I would, I would refer you to um, Psalm 1, uh, which likens the, uh, the person who's faithful and whose faith is thriving and vibrant and fruitful to a tree planted by, by a stream. And if you've ever, particularly if you drive over to eastern Washington, you know that it's a little bit drier over there, and so everything's pretty arid, except where? Where there's rivers. And where there's rivers, uh, what, you, what do you see? You see trees along there. Why? Because they're drawing the life-giving life uh, life water. They're fruitful. They're fruitful. And, and so when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God here, he's saying, look, nurture in your life practices that will, that will enable you to continually receive from God. So, I mean, God's always giving, but you're not able to receive it without the proper practices. This will be a series that we enter into together in October of spiritual disciplines in, in, in preaching. What practices help us receive God's love? And then he says, um, 
Serve and save, still in this, in this theme of warning. Uh, serve. Have mercy on some who are doubting. You know what this means? It means that if we're going to help each other along in faith, uh, the best way to help is uh, when someone's doubting, when someone's struggling, when someone's drifting, or even someone who doesn't know Christ, uh, the answer is not attract. And the answer is not like your apologetic brilliance. Someone's doubting. They don't need a debate about the age of the earth in that moment. Right? Or like, what? they don't need that. When someone's doubting, have mercy. I'll give you one just great example. There's students from Canada. They come down here and they, and they spend time with us. Um, they're studying at a Bible school on a tiny island. They, and so they only know each other all year. And they did a little urban hit before they go back into the real world. So they, they come and spend a week here. And one of the things that we do, I send them out into the, into the vastness of Seattle, and I say, just go be the presence of Jesus. Don't, don't you know, unscrew people's heads and pour Bible in, just be the presence of Jesus. They, so they go to this park, these two girls, they come back and share their story. They say, yeah, we sat down in the park, and there was a girl eating alone. We invited her to eat with us. She's eating, and uh, when she finishes her lunch, she says, I have to go now. Oh, well, where are you going? Well, and then she got teary. She said, well, a, a guy that I slept with, you know, a while ago, I just found out that he's HIV positive. So I'm going to a clinic to see if I have AIDS. So you know what Christians do. That's sin. That's not what they did. This is what they did. They said, hey, could we go with you? We'd love to go with you. And just hold your hand. That sounds scary. So they went. They don't know her at all, other than her name. They went. And then on the way, they hear the whole story on the bus about her guys and her sexual habits. And, and then they're in this clinic, and this gal's cell phone rings. And so the students are now relating the story to me. And they said, well, we only heard her side, but this is how it went. Oh, hi, Sally. No, uh, I'm fine. No, you don't need to come. I have some friends here that are with me. Yeah, they're brand new friends. I just met them in the park. They're Christians. And then, don't you love this? No, not those kind. That's what they said. <laughs> not those kind. Here's why we laugh. We all know what that means. Right? Have mercy on those who are doubting. You don't walk with people. And then uh, it says, and it's, it's, I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story, so don't worry. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatch them from the fire. Do you know what that means? That's, that's a bit of the counterpoint, a very gentle counterpoint to having mercy. In other words, there's a time to call people uh, to faith in Christ. There's a time to call everybody to faith in Christ. There's a time to call people to account by exposing sin. There's a time to tell people that they're at a crossroads. There's a time. And my assessment of Bethany Community Church is that we're in little danger of ramming the gospel down people's throat in offensive ways. We're in little danger of being those people. If we have a weakness, it's right here. We're afraid of the crossroads. And I want to encourage you uh, to, 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 to not be afraid of the crossroads. We believe, and this is why we gather, we believe that Christ makes a difference in people's lives. And so we want to call people to Christ, understanding that every person has a door for which Christ is the key. Every person you meet has a door, Christ is the key. For some, the door is failure. They, they know they're stuck in an addiction or something. 
Christ's the key. He'll make you a new creation. For some, life's out of control. It's cancer. It's infidelity. It's job loss. Christ is a shepherd. He'll walk with you in the chaos of his life. For some, uh, the door is this. I'm bored. I've climbed the mountain of success, and there's nothing there at the top. Christ is writing, though, a unique story of hope in the world and inviting you to play a part. Every person has a door. Christ's the key. So save those that you know. Like, invite people into God's story. And so we do well to pay attention to all of these steps as a congregation. That's why we have an alpha course that helps people encounter Christ. That's why Phil has this spiritual journey course, which if you haven't taken, I'd encourage you to do so. That's why we're doing a spiritual discipline uh, series in the fall. And there's the last thing, a promise. It says uh, in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Don't you love that the whole book is about this? Don't stumble! Be, like, be careful, your car doesn't clean itself. Your faith doesn't sustain itself. So do your part, and then at the, the end of it is just perfect. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So that's a summary statement. Don't stumble. Oh, and by the way, there's one who will prevent you from stumbling. His name is Christ. And because he lives in you, the only one who lived a perfect life 24-7 is offering you all the resources of his resurrection life now living in you so that all you need to do every day is draw upon the resources of Christ's life. As I draw on the resources of Christ's life, I become in increasing measure from glory to glory to glory to glory the person Christ wants me to be. Draw on the resources, listen for revelation, respond, and watch what happens. Resisting entropy always requires the next step. My car doesn't clean itself. Your faith doesn't sustain itself. So God is speaking to us always about next steps. And entropy begins when God speaks, and like Cain, we say, no, not today. I'm gonna, thanks God, but I've got this. You don't. <laughs> we need to respond in faith obediently to God's very next step for each of us. And you have one this morning. So as we close, uh, we'll, the prayers that God would show you your next step and that you'd have the courage to take it. Father, meet us now in response. We're grateful for the book of Jude and, the, and not only the warnings, but the fast hope in the book. There's one who's able to keep us from stumbling. We look to you. Shepherd us, Father. Give us grace to hear your voice and respond. And we'll thank you that you'll continue to uh, uh, light the fire of our faith and sustain that flame for decades for your purposes and glory. We pray in Christ's name.